You are listening to Down Home. Errol Sharp is a trailblazer. He was involved in publishing books about BIPOC Canadians when it wasn't fashionable, way before the social justice memes and before the hashtags. Errol's contributions to the Canadian publishing scene are well regarded. He was awarded the 2021 Ivy Award for his work in the industry. He's also the father of a good friend to me and Jay and the Down Home podcast, Lindsay Sharp. Errol has given us a bit of his time to talk about diversity in the publishing industry and his time in the north end of Halifax. Welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience from two black men. I'm Derek Wise, and as always, we have Jay Jones. What's happening? And our conversation this week is with award-winning author and, and publicist, Errol Sharp. Mr. Sharp, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Awesome. Uh, that is great. That is great. Now, I'm you, doing great. You've, uh, you've been in, involved in... Um, uh, the publication of books uh, for a, a very long time. And um, so you've seen a lot of things. In, in your opinion, does the publishing industry in Canada have a diversity issue? Uh, yes, I do. Um, and I guess the way I'd answer that uh, is that I think the struggle in Canadian publishing is always... Uh, between the powers that be and and those that are somewhere beyond, somewhere below the powers that be, and we, you know, the appearance I think at the moment is that there's a lot of diversity and there's certainly a lot of publishing being done, uh, you know, from minority groups and and from marginalized groups in the country. However. It's a lot of it, in my view anyway, a lot of it is words and the actions don't seem to follow. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, we can, we can look at the, you know, we can look at what really is happening or we can look what we say is happening and uh, what we say is happening isn't being borne out with what's happening in the society as a whole. Right. So yes, there's diversity, but the effectiveness of that diversity, I, I'm not so sure about. Right. So it's almost like a, a microcosm of what's going on in our Canadian society as a whole, huh? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and you know, publishing always reflects that. I don't think publishing, except for a, a very small. A group of publishers are, are in any way, you know, in a lot of ways, in any way, challenging that. Mm -hmm. In fact, mm -hmm. they, you know, they embrace it because that's where the most money is. Right, right. Always now, the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, what what uh, started you in the publishing industry? Because you you were you were um, involved in. Re correct me if I'm wrong. You were involved in uh, uh, write writing. Uh, 
way earlier than you started actually publishing. Like you started the publishing aspect of your career in the, in the early 90s, right? No, uh, I actually, in terms of publishing, goes way back to the 1970s. Oh, really? I was involved with a, an organization called the Canadian Liberation Movement, which was part of the nationalist movement of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And I was a salesperson and I sold books for, oh. uh, the, for NC Press, which was the publishing arm of the Canadian Liberation Movement. And uh, that's where I first got involved in you know, direct contact with the publishing industry. For example, I was selling uh, there was a book that was published in 1969, I think, uh, which was the Patriot's Handbook, or it was originally published in French uh, and got translated into English by NC Press. Uh, and I sold that book both in French and in English for a number of years. Right. Uh, and then I got involved in traveling around the country selling books. Uh, and then I got a job with another company after NCF Press folded. And when it folded, I set up what is today called Brunswick Books, was then called Fernwood Books, right. uh, doing sales and later distribution of publishers, both from Canada and people like Monthly Review Press and Said Books and Pluto Press and so on and so forth from the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we got involved in. Uh, then we got involved in uh, the first book we tried to publish uh, with a group of a consortium of people, which was between the lines Women's Press and a small uh, printing company in Toronto called Muskox Press, and we got together with the rather. Uh, ambitious attempt to produce an introductory sociology book for courses in Canada. Right. It never happened, but we did did publish a couple of parts of that book as as books. So, you know, my publishing actually goes back to somewhere in the mid-70s. Right, right. Earlier. Interesting. Now, at, at a time when it wasn't really popular to publish books about social justice, and you seem to be at the forefront of giving voice to people of color back in like the 90s, or even before that, like, like you're explaining. Um, what, what's behind that? Well, that's a, the first book that at NC Press, we published a book called Black Canadians mm-hmm. by a guy named Tillich. And that, I think, was probably the first attempt in Canada to publish a book that looked at the history of Black people in Canada. Right. Uh, There weren't very many of them anyway that I know of, and and there certainly wasn't any that was a critical look at, you know, at Black Canadians' history that, you know, so... Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, within the within the kind of rubric of you know looking for social change, that came naturally. I think to a certain extent. I mean, how can you talk about social change and not talk about the treatment of of uh, 
minorities and racism and sexism and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Women's Press and, and the company I was with at that time, Garamond Press, we became uh, the leading publishers of women's uh, writing, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Cool. You know, so all of these things, and, and what happened is that these, you know, uh, publishing about uh, women and, and people of color and so on uh, got introduced by not us, but not only us, but other smaller companies. And when the bigger companies saw that they could actually make money out of it, they didn't give a shit whether they published about uh, you know, racism or not, but if racism made money for them, they did it. They did <laughs> right. It. Yeah. That's isn't that the always way the way, way, though? Isn't it? Isn't that always the, the way? The capitalist system works. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 True. It always comes down to the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and you know, when I look back over my publishing career, the number of books that uh, got introduced by small. Uh, radical publishers that later became, you know, like, for example, at one point in the game, we published, uh, you know, some of our smaller publishers published practically all the work on, on women that was published in Canada. Today, uh, everybody's doing it. Yeah, everyone's doing mm -hmm. it. Because yeah. of themselves. Yeah. No, I'm not yeah. saying they're all bad, but <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, money money drives it. Money drives money drives yeah, exactly. driving for us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what um, uh, what made you move to the the north end of Halifax? Well, uh, I was living in Toronto, and I I had come down a year earlier uh, to uh, do a, a master's degree at St. Mary's University and as you know Lindsay came with me mm -hmm. and uh, when when Lindsay and I came down here we we lived down in Brunswick Street actually in a rooming house there and we lived there for a year and uh, then I came back to Toronto for a year and and uh, in the meantime I had met Beverly and uh, basically, when we went back to Toronto, I went back because I, I basically had told people I'd be back, and I felt an obligation to come back for a year. So I spent the year kind of getting things straightened out in Toronto, or getting mm -hmm. my mind, getting me straightened out in Toronto. Right. And uh, we we actually wanted to live outside of Halifax, but we bought the place on Creighton Street. Uh, well, partly because we could afford it, and right. of course that is and was and still is part of the gentrification of the north end of Halifax. Right. Uh, we couldn't afford to buy a place in the south end or in mm -hmm. the west end or whatever. That was the place that we could afford. So we moved in. We weren't fully aware of what the situation was in, in Creighton Street in the north end of Halifax when we moved in. Mm -hmm. However, we lived there for five years, and uh, I will always remember living there because we had a good relationship with our neighbors. We got involved in doing some uh, community stuff, uh, sports stuff, and a vacant lot was across the street from us yeah. at that time. That's now public, some kind of housing. Yeah, and you know, it was it was a great experience. 
uh, even if on the corner, uh, which is now Buddy Day on Creighton Street, every evening the the boys were lined up to sell drugs or sell women or sell whatever they could sell. Mm -hmm. And you know, I also mm -hmm. had a relationship with some of them after a while because they realized I lived in the community. I wasn't a customer, so they could talk to me like a human being. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the the one beautiful thing, I mean, I didn't grow up in the North End, spent a lot of time there when I was a young kid going to Cornwall Street Baptist Church, but no matter what was going on, there was always that sort of sense of community, you know? Oh, God, uh, yeah. It was, that, it was quite amazing. And, and the, you know, the thing that I always thought about it was that, you know, in spite of the fact that we got robbed a couple of times in the process, uh, I think there was a, you know, um, there was a, a real acceptance by the community with people like us once they saw that we were trying to be supportive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah true. I've always found that with the black community. I mean, yeah. there's an appreciation for uh, a white guy like me. I actually been sympathetic. To, you know what I mean? No, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. I, I um, I think I remember. I don't know if Lindsay remembers this, but I was walking to my because my grandmother lived a few doors down from where you were in uh, on Creighton Street yeah. and um, ran into Lindsay and, and we were walking across the commons, walking home. And I asked him, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'm going home. I said, where do you live? And, and, and like, I, I remember having that conversation years ago and he, he said, oh, it's on Creighton Street there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, great memories of uh, that house and uh, me and Jay and, and Lindsay and a couple of friends sitting in your backyard there. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. But you see, Lindsay used to have to, he, he went to school in the South End. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Horsbrook, right? Horsbrook. And we were living on Brunswick Street. So the, you know, that wasn't the closest school, but I was going over there every day to university and it was convenient that way. But I, at, the, at that point, I wasn't sure I wanted to register Lindsay in the school in the North End. Mm -hmm. he, he was a 13-year-old cocky little white guy from <laughs> Toronto who not only thought he was superior because of his, because of his race, but because of where he came from. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after all, Toronto is the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was afraid that he'd get, he wouldn't make out so well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, he did well. And, but, but he used to go out to the commons to meet uh, his people that he knew from Gorsebrook and escort them down to Creighton Street because they wouldn't <laughs> walk down to Creighton Street. His <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Man. Yeah, the commons, the gateway, the gateway <laughs> to different, gateway. different portals of the city. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, you know, you mentioned, of course, you know, your sort of social uh, justice spirit was kind of always naturally there. Um, you uh, actually... Speaking of social justice, you you uh, struck up a friendship with uh, Rocky Jones, who, you know, if for people who don't know, he was a, a civil rights activist in, in the 60s in Halifax, speaking about black rights and um, stuff like that. But you ended up uh, publishing a book or two about him and also having a close personal friendship. Can you speak a little bit about that? 
Yeah, and and if you ask me when I met Rocky, I couldn't tell you because mm -hmm. Rocky was quite a visible figure around Halifax. And if you were involved in progressive stuff and and uh, you know meetings and community organizations, inevitably Rocky showed up. And I just kind of got to know him through that, right? Mm -hmm. And and then later, uh, you know, spent time chatting with Rocky and visiting him at his house and, and so on, uh, we often talked about political stuff because I often got the feeling that Rocky, uh, you know, um, even with his own family to some extent, never could get into that kind of discussion because, <laughs> you know, so I, I always felt he was quite happy to be able to have that kind of a discussion because... Mm -hmm. Rocky was a revolutionary. He he wasn't, you know, and and while he was incredibly loyal to his family and to the black community at some level, uh, in his own thinking and his own, you know, he 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 was in a different place mm -hmm. in terms of you know what he, you know, but that never that never separated them from it. So over that period of time, you know, we got to know one another. And then uh, when when him and uh, uh, names always fall. We believe that Errol's talking uh, about James Walker, professor of history at Waterloo. A biography of Rocky and spent a lot of time doing interviews and stuff with Rocky. Mm -hmm. Rocky uh, wanted us to do the book. Excellent. And so uh, it never did get done in his lifetime. That book actually didn't come out until a couple of years after Rocky died. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when uh, it was um, when George Elliott Clark and uh, his name will come to me and then from the University of Waterloo, uh, this is old age talking. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, they then uh, they they came to me and we decided to do the book. And I've always thought that I, I think it would have been a different book had Rocky been alive. Right. You know, but that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, and you know. Um, that's how I got involved in, in, in any event, and, and uh, it was a great honor for us to publish Rocky, the, the book on Rocky, because he was an important figure, mm -hmm. very important. Not only was that book about Rocky, it, it, that book, as I have said to many people and tried to say to people in universities, for example, in, in a way embedded in that book is a history of the black community in, in Nova Scotia. Yeah. You know, because Rocky was always involved in political activity, but never, ever deserted the community. In keeping with that, you know, uh, what social issues do you believe need more of a voice today? Yeah, personally, I think we're not really talking about, we talk about social change, but we're not talking about changing the system. Right. And if we don't change the system, uh, we're never going to have the kind of social change that we want. Right. Uh, you you take 
Nova Scotia when it comes to racism. Uh, you know, some of the stories that you hear from people like Lynn Jones and other people about their experience of living in Halifax and, and so on. Uh, you know, you look back over the last 30 years and you think a lot of things have happened, a lot more Black people got a voice, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the time when it comes down to real life, they don't. Right. You know? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's poignant. Like, um, you're right. Like, it, um, the, we can talk about it, we can talk about it, but the root of the problem is the, the system itself hasn't changed. And I'll give you an example. I could give you lots of them, but this is an interesting one. When, when uh, uh, we did a book with Lynn on, on reparations, a children's mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. and when, we, when they were preparing that book, we were, uh, we were giving them an advance to pay for the people that were working on the book and putting it together. And I had written a check to Lynn. And I was sitting at my office one day and the phone rang and it was the bank. They said, do you know Lynn Jones? And I said, yes. Well, she's here with a check from your company. I said, yeah, so. (laughs) (laughs) And and, well, uh, can we cash it? I said, well, why wouldn't you? I knew yeah. the answer to that question, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, in, in all of my years in writing checks to banks, they bounced a few, <laughs> but they never <laughs> called me and asked me if the person that was there to uh, cash that check was a legitimate customer. Wow. Yeah. And I said to them, why did you, why did you, you know, why? Well, of course, they wouldn't say you understand what I mean. Yeah. But it was quite clear. And I remember calling Lynn afterwards and asking her, but she knew, of course, because she was there. And she just, you know, Lynn kind of at one level kind of shrugged her shoulders. Oh, well, that happens every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and- <laughs> it don't happen to me every day. And it was quite an experience to have to you know realize that so those kind of experiences help you realize how incredibly deeply entrenched uh racism is in our society and 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 not only in the society but in people like me Mm uh and i've you know many times in my own thinking tried to imagine what it's like to grow up like you guys Mm -hmm. i i can I, I have some clues, but I, I never experienced that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And out of my experience and out of the experience of many people, white people, uh, we react out of that experience, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and sometimes what we do, we realize later, isn't what we really wanted to do anyway, but it happened because that's where we came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, there are a lot of well-meaning people out there that are floundering around when it comes to social issues. I, I definitely agree. Um, but um, as I was telling my daughter um, yesterday, you know, the way to deal with uh, your friends that are, that are not of color is to ask them to listen. Yeah. Just listen. 
um, mm-hmm. to people who are talking about their experiences. And it's, that's not a, it's not a natural thing for people just to listen and take in mm-hmm. um, because we want, like you said, we want to relate what we're going, our experiences with the person's experience and it's well-meaning. Yeah, definitely. I remember this, this uh, I'll tell you stories because that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time I, I was talking with Rocky and we were talking about uh, racism or something related to it. I don't know the, I don't know the details of it now, but Rocky said, Errol, come here. And he stood me up in front of a mirror and he said, what do you see? And I said, I see my face. And he said, well, I see mine when I look in that mirror too, but what happens when you step outside of this door, my house? Your face is not seen, but mine's seen by everybody that walks by. Mm. And I kind of sat there and thought, shook my head a few times, and you know, because I can walk out there and just feel that I'm a random person wandering down the street. He walks out there and he was not a random person walking down yeah. the street and everybody was aware of his presence. Yeah. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, unintentionally there's a target, you know, yeah. oh, just, oh, just, for sure. just, you know, and, yeah. you know, like you say, it's so deeply entrenched in, in thought and ways of past that we can never seem to break the cycle. And, you know, the status quo is always kept because like you say, sometimes the powers of be will always have an agenda even beyond of trying to do what's technically right, you know, just mm-hmm. to keep their status quo alive. But uh, that's the that's the problem of the, all those systems, what we were built on, you know, great countries and stuff like that, but not really, in my personal opinion, you know, yeah. when it comes to those issues. Well, most white people won't say this, I don't think, but we were brought up to believe that you were inferior. Mm, yeah. That you yeah. were less than human, or at least less than us as humans. Yeah, mm-hmm. less than. Yeah. And yeah. I, it that don't just disappear with a flick of the finger no you know it's pretty well ingrained in the in the even and even people that know you know or or, are anti-racist and fight against racism and stuff it takes a long time for that to you know for for white people to just actually see a black person or a person of color as as another human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not one that's categorized in some way. Exactly. Well, this, this has been uh, an awesome conversation. Thank you very much for your time. We actually have a surprise for you. (laughs) I have a surprise for you. Let's see how this works. So hang on for a second. Yeah. We had arranged for our friend and Errol's son, Lindsay to join our conversation. Oh, God, who the hell is that? Yeah, father and son reunited. Hi, team, how are you? Good, how are you doing, man? Thanks for doing Very good, good, nice to see you all. Yeah. I've been here for a while, Lindsay. Your beard's looking good. Yeah, it looks a little cold for a trim at the moment. He's also got... His hair hasn't changed color, but his beard has, and that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. So he can't escape. <laughs> it's inevitable. It <laughs> it's in the genes. <laughs> we, we've we've never had to do a DNA test to uh, confirm our paternity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah no, no. 
Well, we've uh, we've had a great conversation with your father, Lindsay. Oh my goodness, man! Um, yeah. You guys are great. Like it does brought a lot of memories back about uh, Creighton Street. And uh, as I told your father, sitting in your backyard, they're trying to uh, make sure when I when I would leave your house, I'd look both ways to make sure my grandmother wasn't walking down the street. Because <laughs> usually, because usually we had a few. Uh, uh fuzzy pops there in your backyard man yeah <laughs> on more than one occasion and and like and even times when you weren't there <laughs> no one was home <laughs> I, I think it's possible your grandmother might not have wanted you hanging out with me and Errol at the time too <laughs> i'm awfully glad you did because that worked out really well so. yeah, yeah definitely man no definitely it was, it was great uh to hook up there but um, do you guys have anything to say before we wrap up? Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I mean, I've done, I obviously you, 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 both of us, we, the three of us have talked about this a fair bit, but Errol and I have even had a couple of conversations just about um, how much reflection and stuff I did leading into the interview I did with you guys. But since mm-hmm. then too, like, you know, I mean, I've obviously listened to a lot of all, 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 the, all of the podcasts, but, uh, it's really engaged my mind again in uh, stuff that, you know, as I've been here for so long, I've kind of disengaged a little bit in Halifax and I find myself, you know, reading a lot more local stuff there again, trying to mm-hmm. stay in touch with, you know, what is still my community despite where I am geographically. Of course. Uh, and so I thank you guys for that because for sure, you know, you you were the kind of impetus for that engagement. For sure. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's taken, it's, taken, it's taken me down a rabbit hole as well. Like right now I'm kind of, doing uh, doing some research on my family and you know and it's like kind of really amazing to see how far it goes back and what you know who they were in the community and all these relatives that i i'm related to and who tried to do a lot of social change so uh you know you can't help but look at it and go wow so it but it invigorates your feeling for the community you grew up in at least that's where my head's at for sure yeah yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned your family, and I've become much more aware of the kind of impact of your family since you and I started talking. I mean, I obviously have known a bunch of your relatives off and on, and Errol has worked with a bunch of them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it is crazy. I mean, the history of your family in Nova Scotia is pretty wild, man. Uh, yeah, deep and yeah. long, and, you know, it's got breadth, yeah. as they say. <laughs> yeah. One thing, one thing I'd say about Lindsay is that. His awareness of a lot of these issues like racism and inequality and stuff like that was uh, much more keen when he left Halifax than it was when he came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, I think we, we, we spoke about that. I mean, it's it's seeing it unfold in such a stark reality is so yeah. different than concept, conceptualizing it is one thing, uh, you know, I didn't live it, but I lived in it, if you know what I mean, right? You know, mm-hmm. I'm obviously... Yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, but I was in the neighborhood and I certainly saw how my neighbors and my friends got treated in the neighborhood, right? It, mm-hmm. it, was, it was eye-opening, no shit. <laughs> but one of the things that struck me when I first came to Halifax, uh, you know, I'd been involved in a whole bunch of stuff in Toronto as part of uh, parents' movement and stuff and a lot of the stuff around equity and the school community relations group at the Board of Education and all of that kind of stuff. And there certainly was all kinds of racism in Toronto of one kind or another. But when I came to Halifax, uh, the segregation of Halifax struck me in a way that segregation didn't 
strike me on Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people, there was more mixing of people. But in in Halifax, when we first met there, if you saw a black person south of uh, Spring Garden Road, you knew they were a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, 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 the people that lived there uh, d- didn't cross that street. That was a no-no, you know. Yeah. For the most for for the most part, and uh, you know the, the the segregation of the community, which I and and Beverly and consequently Lindsay had inadvertently moved into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, was a, an incredible thing for me in terms of of uh, realizing. Uh, the reality of you know, you know living in a in a racist society like Halifax, you know, yeah. Halifax being called the Mississippi of the North, as you yeah. heard, yeah, and in a in a real sense it is, and in a real sense that's still true in Halifax. And what's happening today is gentrification, of course, is driving uh, a lot of the the black people out of the North End because yeah. they can no longer afford to live there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard people like Lynn Jones, for example, say, I used to be able to walk down, I used to be able to walk down Cottage and Street and feel safe. Mm-hmm. I don't feel as safe anymore, was mm-hmm. what he said, because, yeah. you know, it's become gentrified. But, but even when we lived there, there was only one black person that lived that worked as a retail person in any of those stores mm-hmm. and that was at the drugstore at the corner of Canard. yeah yeah no that's uh that's a that's a uh a valid point i um you know in looking back like living it you're not really aware of it and you know uh living in the north end i generally didn't I didn't go north of the commons, you know, yep. I, I didn't go, uh, I didn't go south of Spring Garden very often, unless I was actually purchasing something or visiting someone very quickly. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's very poignant. And um, years later, just before I left, uh, just a, a quick story. <laughs> I, um, me, Jay, and a really close buddy of ours, Chad, we all got for don't ask me why but we got uh uh paper routes as adults <laughs> like thinking that it was easy money like so we we're delivering papers at like three o'clock in the morning right yeah good times yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> but um so i meet with the guy the my manager and, and um it turns out the only territory he had was in the south end so you know <laughs> Uh, the first few times that I'm delivering papers, I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm just trying to get through it. I'm tired because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not used to being up at that time. And eventually after a couple of weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing police cars <laughs> on my route like that I hadn't seen before. And like, I'm going, what the hell? And then I, like, I, I talked to my father and um, my father drove cab for years in Halifax. And I told him what he was doing. He, he was like, uh, what are you doing that for? And I said, oh, just some extra cash is great. You know, he said, and, and where? And I said, in the South End. He said, you better be careful. 
Yeah. And I, I had, I actually had to ask him, what are you talking about? He said, you're, you're a young black man in the South end at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, Derek, um, I went to, uh, in 1982, it would have been in May, uh, the Learnets were held at Dalhousie University. The Learnets is the uh, organization where all the intellectuals get, a, they call it the Congress today. Uh, uh, they got a little bit more humble. Uh, but, it, you know, the, the academics from all over the country get together to share their learned papers. And as publishers, we were there with our books, displaying the books to the to the to the the, the meetings. Mm -hmm. We were told now there was a police strike in Halifax that year, but we were told at a public meeting not to go to the North End. Really, wow! And these were people that were coming from all over Canada that were situated. Uh, you know, that were at Dalhousie University, which was within 20-minute walking distance, as you know, from the north end. And we were told it was not safe for us to be there. Really? Mm. And I remember, I remember two or three of us did take a walk out to cottage and to, to try and find out what the danger was. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you learn. <laughs> that's how you learn. I just wanted to uh, add something, one little quick thing here uh, to this story that... Um, Errol experience actually they told me many many moons ago um when we were living on Creighton Street and my brother was in town and there was a young boy from a couple doors down named Richard and you know him and my him and my brother were buddies because they were six years younger than me right and they were hanging out and stuff like that and one day my dad was working at St. Mary's at the time and he had to run down to the south end um you know and he got, you know Ian and Richard were playing together and Errol said you know hey Richard you want to come along he said, oh sure you know let me check with my mom gets permission comes out and the way he goes I guess I should add that you know Richard was a young African Canadian guy, right? Because um, there's context to that, obviously. And uh, as they're driving down towards St. Mary's, they go to cross Spring Garden Road, and Richard kind of starts freaking out and goes, you know, Errol, Errol, you know, like I'm I'm not allowed to go past Spring Garden Road. And my dad at the time was totally like, well, what do you mean? And, and then he says, you know, my mom has always told me it's not safe for me to be in that part of town. And it was such a way, a totally different way of thinking about it. Because the whole time I had been in Nova Scotia, everything had always been juxtaposed about white people being, you know, victims in the North End. And here's this very young guy, like at the time, maybe, maybe 11 or something like that. Yeah. And it was the first time that that light was shone for me, where it was like, oh, right. If you flip this on his head, it's actually way more risky for <laughs> A young black guy to be in the south end than it is for a young white guy to be in the north end, right? Right. Which I found very illuminating at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was hey. it was it was something I never really uh thought about, you know, in all my years, really. I mean, when I was a younger kid, yes, because you know, the, the N-word was being thrown around, you yeah. know, from kids in school and stuff. And you know, until I got acclimated with in my community growing up in mostly white community in Klein Heights in the Spryfield area. Um, once I got acclimated to that community, I didn't really fear about being black because I felt like I had kind of toughened up being there. And then, you know, I'd spend so much time in the North end at church and I felt like I had, I had both words covered and I, I felt safe. So I, I, but really I probably wasn't, you know, just because I didn't think like that. 
I just, just going back to what Lindsay said about the young fella coming over to St. Mary's, we, 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 I, I took him for a little drive around the south end after you cross, you know, the, the deep south end where all of the big houses are. Yeah. I never saw a young fella so surprised before or since. Yeah. He said, how many people live in those houses? Oh, <laughs> maybe a you know, nuclear family, a man, a woman, yeah. one yeah. of his children. I mean, less than your two bedroom apartment. In a one room apartment, there were seven of them in one mm. room. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, he said, I don't believe you. And I said, it's true. Mm. I mean, that's the difference between where, you know, where you live in on Creighton Street and where these people live. Mm. What is it? Half hour walk? Yeah. If that. Yeah. If that. Mm. If, Crazy. Uh, I, and I just thought, you know, and I'd traveled a bit, I'd seen some stuff, but, you know, he, he just was absolutely flabbergasted that, that this actually happened as close mm. to where he lived as he did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah it's crazy. Yeah. All right. Gentlemen, this has been awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Jay Jones, why don't you take us out, man? Yeah, man. I mean, it was great. It's great to see Lindsay, who was an excellent guest last year. And now, you know, Errol, thanks for coming on. And it's good to see where Lindsay gets his candor from and his sense of spirit. And uh, it's just a really good conversation to have to know about uh, our history once again through different eyes. And, uh these conversations are important. This is how we sort of change things, I believe, at least us being conscious of what we're actually talking about and the way we can consciously live within these issues that we see and that we continue to see. So thanks for shining light on, on that, guys. And Derek, as always, down home is in the house. <laughs> hey, thank you, Jason. Cheers, guys. Have a great day. We'll see you guys soon, all right? Hey, yeah, wonderful. all right. Take it easy, guys. Thanks. You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On a high plateau, from the one down below to the future of the funk, getting lost in the flow. Contact with the spot, McX. Now it's time to flex with the force from the soul, reaching all aspects, getting deep. No time to sleep as you reach your next phase, laying it all on the line. New trails start to blaze. It's a fire inside. The song breaking new ground from breakdown. Just kicking it live, a connection so strong, transcribed with the vibe like magic prescribed. Only to see the perfect blend like a diamond in the rough.